Hello and welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, a weekly podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists and cutting edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Dr. Jason Boynton, sports scientist and cycling coach, Damien Roos, who's the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast and a professional cycling coach, and me, Cyrus Monk, pro cyclist and cycling coach. The Cycling Performance Club podcast is recorded live in the presence of an online audience on the Clubhouse app, so you can join in and ask questions or participate in any of the discussions as we're having them. This week, we will be looking into thresholds in cycling. This is a topic Jason is going to take us through and one that's ever-present in the cycling science landscape, so... Jason, do you want to go ahead and introduce the topic for us? Yeah. Um, so I've just been wanting to kind of dive into all of the thresholds lately. And it seems like it's such a basic question, but it's very, very fundamental to coaching and the endurance realm in general. And, you know, if you don't have... Uh, a background in physiology, you might think that, you know, functional threshold power is just a representation of all the thresholds and they all just kind of correspond. But actually, when you start going down this rabbit hole, it's things are not what you think they are. So um, it just becomes very interesting. And I try to do a deep dive on this as much as possible. And yeah, we've come to, I've come to some interesting findings and some interesting conclusions here. But uh, just to kind of uh, go over what we're going to discuss today specifically, or what's on my agenda and my notes here, we'll talk about what threshold is, what is the purpose of determining threshold, what are some of the many types of thresholds that are out there, are these thresholds the same, are they different, are they interchangeable with each other, um, how are the different thresholds determined? And what does all of this talk about thresholds mean for the real world coach and cyclist? First of all, what is threshold? If you just take the definition out of the dictionary, threshold is the magnitude or intensity that must be exceeded for a certain reaction, phenomenon, result, or condition to occur or to be manifested. If we're going to understand this, concepts in the context of endurance exercise where we first need to start is understanding what are known as the exercise domains for aerobic exercise and those three domains are the moderate exercise domain heavy exercise domain and the severe exercise domain then what happens in these domains during exercise are considerably different physiological responses. So what happens to oxygen consumption in these domains is different in each domain. And what happens to something like blood lactate is different within each one of these domains. And it's also really important to point out that it might sound like these domains are training zones, but they're not training zones. These are domains and exercise that are defined by physiological occurrences. And I guess um, you could 
create zones that are that attempt to be in these domains but again training zones are not uh, exercise domains so how do you differentiate these zones and what are the main differences well if you look at the moderate exercise domain which would be exercise at the lowest intensities what occurs there is physiological steady states occur rapidly so if you there's a small increase in uh, to intensity in that domain then the steady state for oxygen consumption or heart rate or blood lactate would occur really quickly and it would get to steady state really quickly in the heavy exercise domain in the middle there what happens is physiological uh, steady states are delayed so this gets into a concept known as the vo2 slow component or oxygen oxygen consumption slow component and then the highest intensity uh, exercise domain is the severe exercise domain and in that domain uh, physiological steady states do not occur um, what happens is basically um, something like oxygen consumption or blood lactate will just continue to increase until there's exercise failure. So you won't see a plateau. And so the measures of thresholds are what separate these domains. So if you think in your head, you have these uh, three c categories, then if, you know, a lot of people, when they think of threshold, they only think of one threshold, but actually based on these three domains, you would have two different thresholds. And those thresholds classically are uh, known as aerobic threshold and anaerobic threshold. But I think those terms are a little bit antiquated. I don't know what your thoughts on that, Cyrus, if you would kind of say this is something yeah. similar. Yeah, that's the... The wordy ways, and then you've got LT1 and LT2, which don't really tell you that much more. I don't really like when you're using just acronyms for the sake of that. And also, it's not like there's ones or twos going around in your blood. So, it's I prefer the use of terminology that actually tells you a bit about what it is because I think it makes life easier for everyone. So, I think that's the idea with the naming of these thresholds is... In theory, your aerobic threshold is the um, is where you're doing aerobic work majoritively, and then anaerobic threshold is the point at threshold at which it switches to anaerobic work. But obviously, that is it's yeah, so much more yeah. of a continuum than two points. Yeah, and but, I, th I think for me, like anaerobic threshold is misleading because once you cross that threshold, the doesn't mean that you're not using oxygen for exactly so for for any kind of energy and so it seems really like i don't like those terms because they're a little bit misleading i don't mind yeah. the vt1 vt2 and we'll get into that in a little bit but i because one is lower than two and so you can kind of at least in your mind have a concept of where they occur in terms of yeah. uh, exercise intensity uh, and yeah, yeah, just for for the listeners, yeah. LT LT one and LT two or VT one and VT two is just lactate threshold one, lactate threshold two, 
and then Venturi Threshold 1 and Venturi Threshold 2. So they are measuring different things, but we'll probably yeah. get into this at yeah. some point here, but yeah. people will just interchange them for one another, which yeah. as we sort of look at the physiology, they're completely different things and and will represent different things in the body. Yeah. yeah. I think when most endurance athletes think about threshold, what they're really thinking about most of the time is that threshold between your heavy exercise domain and your severe intensity domain, or I'm sorry, your severe exercise domain. And a generic kind of label for that that I've come across in the literature would be the maximal metabolic steady state. And that shouldn't be mixed up with maximal lactate steady state. But that just seems like a good uh, kind of general term because there's so many different thresholds that try to describe this concept. And to put it into a a race sense, it was just timely that watching the Tour de France yesterday, Sean Kelly, who's always, I'm watching it in Europe and get the GCN feed here as a free plug for GCN but uh, they his commentary is just saying the whole time on the final climb as I'm saying the GC favourites attacking each other are oh, this rider's right on his threshold if he goes any harder he's going to blow up whereas this rider sitting below his threshold and no disrespect to Sean I wouldn't say he's reading too many physiology papers with his spare time but he is still constantly referencing threshold but he hasn't at any point said which threshold he's referring to and I think you'd get a lot of people would refer to threshold even if they're not training with power or heart rate or anything and just think all right threshold is the point at which I can go up to without going into the red zone is another term that we hear people use so in in layman's terms before we really define what they are I think a lot of people are just referring to the point at which you can reach before you go pop in a race. Yeah. Well, this kind of gets into, you know, it's just a theory versus it's scientific theory or the scientific definitions of threshold versus what he's using it as. If you just look at the, the pure definition, it just wants a phenomenon or a result. So threshold for for him could just mean popping, you know what I mean? So, yeah. uh, so yeah, it, that's important to point out that, you know, even within the sport, using the term threshold isn't super universal. And no, so... No, not at all. Yeah. So what are the purposes of determining threshold? And I've got a few reasons down here. Um, and the first one would be that I have down is intra-individual or intra-athlete testing. This would be for determining changes in fitness and responses to training with one athlete. Right. So this is this is pretty common for FTP testing. You want to see how your athlete is improving over time. The next method that you could say or the reason you could give for determining a threshold is inter-individual evaluation or inter-athlete evaluation. So that would be what how does your athlete's threshold compare to other athletes' thresholds or other Uh, or as teammates or something like that. Uh, Another reason for determining threshold is to determine training zones. There's a lot of different methods of determining training zones out there, and um, threshold is often a way of using or a way of determining training zones. 
incidentally, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, I would prefer using some type of threshold as a way to determine training zones over determining training zones based off of VO2 max and sometimes you actually, or a heart rate max, but sometimes you do see that. So, um, but that's another topic. Um, the other thing I have down here is thresholds can be used for calculating training load. And then I just kind of have a, at the very end for the last reason of threshold is there's just tons of other models that would use that when you get into W prime and all these other things that we've discussed before on the podcast, there's just a lot of models and I probably could spend a few weeks trying to figure, find them all. Um, but yeah, there's lots of them out there that are going to use lots of different models out there that are going to use threshold. Uh, for endurance athletes in training. Like I was saying, the with thresholds, there's two primary categories. And just quickly yeah, there, yeah. Jason. I was gonna say I should probably uh, stop for a second and see I'll just ask the yeah. um the only full time professional coach here what uh whether he would have any other purposes for determining yeah, yeah, for threshold sure. and and what his his goals are when determining threshold with an athlete. Damien? Yeah, um, I, I really can't think of any ones outside of what Jason's already mentioned here. I don't think that I lean too heavily. Of course, I watch the progress of it. I use it for determining training zones and things, but there's nothing outside of that that I'm really digging into thresholds on. Um, there's some things that we're doing now with the power that you can use for thresholds and for some other sort of testing reasons and things. But outside of that, nothing. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is really important to point out with this conversation is we're going to get pretty deep into the scientific validity of it. Um, and the arguments for, for what you should use and what you shouldn't use and how they relate with each other. But at the end of the day, at the end, I'm hoping that at the end of this podcast, we'll take a big step back and kind of and have a chat about how important that actually is. Because I, I, I think it's good to know all of the finer details of this. Um, but at the same time, we have to be realistic about things. Um, so anyways, I've split these thresholds into two different categories. One are power-based and the other one is physiological based. So the power based ones would be functional threshold power, and a lot of cyclists will recognize that right off the right off the bat. And the other power based one is critical power. And I think it's important to point out that some people might recognize critical power from Joe Friel's stuff. Um, off the top of my head, I don't think that the, the critical power in the scientific literature is not the same as the critical power that he is talking about from what I can remember. So just make sure you're not getting those mixed up. And then when it comes on the physiologically based thresholds, the primary two are going to be lactate thresholds or ventilatory thresholds. Um, and with the lactate threshold, so just quickly yeah. on the on the power based ones, Jason, what's the difference between functional threshold power and critical power? Uh, I'll get to that. <laughs> so I'll get in. Okay. I'll get in. I'm just reading off the the list of the ones. So that, uh, yeah. So yeah, the we'll go through each. Yeah. Yep. And so the 
So the lactate thresholds would be, there's lots and lots of those. There's the maximal lactate steady state. There's the onset blood lactate. There's lactate threshold with the DMAX method. Uh, I think I have a few more that I've written down here too, but there is a lot of them because we've known around about lactate threshold for a long time. So we've been trying to sort out the best ways to measure it. Um, and then there was also, as we talked about the lactate threshold one and lactate threshold two, which are going to correspond with the, you know, the, the lactate threshold one is going to correspond theoretically with the domain between the moderate exercise domain and the heavy exercise domain. And then lactate threshold two theoretically is supposed to correspond to that threshold between the heavy exercise domain and the severe exercise domain. Then uh, the other category of physiological thresholds would be the ventilatory thresholds. We've already talked about those with VT1 and VT2, very similar in relationships and uh, between the exercise domains as LT1 and LT2, whether they correspond with each other is a whole topic in itself. Uh, the other thing, the other, there's another term that goes along with VT2 that we should be aware of, and that is the respiratory compensation point. I think there's, there's arguments that can be made for other thresholds out there. I mean, there's I've seen you know a bunch of literature on you know fat max zones and things like that. So you could, but I didn't have a time to look in, into any of those. And so there, like I said, there could be other kind of zones out there that are. Uh, sub-categorized within these domains. But uh, like I said, I didn't really get a chance to get into those. And I think this is a really good be... place to start, though. Like, this yeah. is the fundamentals of what all of the science pretty much is built on. So starting there and... Yeah, 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 exactly. Anyways, let's get down into the, you know, describing these thresholds a little bit more in depth. And we'll start with functional threshold power because most people out there have used or heard of functional threshold power. And so this was obviously developed by Dr. Andrew Coggett and Hunter Allen. We've discussed this a lot on the podcast. It is defined by the best power output that can be held for approximately 60 minutes. The way of determining this is there is supposedly supposedly a specific warm-up that is supposed to be conducted and then you are supposed supposed to perform a 20-minute all-out power test. And then you take that average power for that 20-minute test and times it by 0.95 or it's or 95% of that 20-minute power test. Or that, yeah. And that is supposed to be the average power that is inserted or asserted to be FTP. Um, one thing to notice, what note here is that I said there was supposed to be a specific warm-up. But there's actually research out there that has said that that's not necessary. Um, the nice thing about the 20-minute power test is you, it's really easy to do. It's, it's an easy field test to do. and You can assign that to your athletes. They don't have to come into a lab. They just have to have a, a, a big hill or a flat section of road that they don't have to worry about stopping on. Um, but one thing that I don't think a lot of people realize because, you know, Dr. Andrew Coggin 
is a sports scientist uh, that, and he created this, but it was actually never scientifically validated. And I've mentioned that before on the podcast and I don't want to feel like I'm uh, beating a dead horse, but it's the truth of the matter. There are now currently, if you look in the literature, there's scientific papers on functional threshold power, but the only reason they're really out there is because functional threshold power kind of blew up in the layman's world and now people are trying to figure out what it relates to in the scientific world. And so that's one thing that maybe a lot of people don't realize about it is that it was just kind of made up. And I kind of understand why, because it would have taken years for them to develop that system and scientifically validate it especially if you don't have the time and the money of the grad students to do it, that would be kind of difficult. So, and now they are making big money because they have the system and it's in training peaks and it's, you know, people use it. When was it first uh, created? Do you know in the two thousands, mid two thousands or something? Well, (laughs) if you would have said, if you would have made it through that video I sent you, you would have heard, (laughs) it would have, it would have, you would have heard it was in 2007. I remember that when I sent you and you're like, I can't make it through this. And I was like, yeah, I know <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a video for a future. But yeah, uh, I think they were said it came out in 2007, 2008. Okay. So the science is moving pretty slow on this then when it, like when it's coming to just validating it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you think, well, I was just thinking about that today in the sense that what it would usually take is, Maybe someone like Cyrus that has used FTP in his junior years, and then you you know you had an interest in sports science, and then you became a grad student somewhere, and then you're like, I want to look at FTP and validate it and see how it relates to these other things, and that takes time, because um, I think most scientists that are established have better things to do than look at functional threshold power, right? So um, also, it's just going to be really tough to get like as a scientist, even if you're sort of coming out against it, like if you, if you find stuff that sort of uh, shows that it's not that useful, it's going to be really tough going up against Training Peaks and Strava, who are probably the two biggest, two most used training platforms in, term, in terms of ride analysis and and training planning to come out and say that they're both not using an effective method is going to be a pretty risky move as a yeah young scientist to come out and say that. No, I would totally disagree with you on that. No. You reckon it would be... Just the opposite. Uh, just the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to, um, or, or, yeah, or, or, or someone wouldn't even care. Yeah. So I don't think a lot of them would be that concerned, especially like if you're an academic and you want to just stay in within the academic world, it doesn't matter really what, what those companies would think of you. Um, but I mean, there's, I mean, you could see, I could see how that would be a concern to some people though. I could definitely see that. But one interesting thing is there was a paper out there that demonstrated that, that FTP is actually a better predictor of performance than VO2 max and VO2 max is, you know, a pretty valid measure within the sports science world for sure but yeah that's ftp and 
let's just move on to the next measure of threshold, which would be critical power. This is probably going to be new to a lot of people uh, that are listening. If you aren't familiar with a lot of the kind of physiological sports science terms that are out there, so critical power is defined as the highest power output at physiological steady state. So this is the highest power output that you would be able to maintain in that um, heavy exercise domain. And like I said, this is a threshold. And how are you mm-hmm. how are you defining the steady state here, or how are the the researchers defining the steady state? Yeah. So the, how you come to determine what critical power is? There's multiple methods for this, and and most of it, most of the methods involve doing multiple trials, multiple all out trials that can range anywhere from. I don't know, maybe I think two minutes is the lowest, maybe up to 20 minutes. And you would do probably at least two, but more likely three or four tests. And then you would uh, use like a hyperbolic curve. I think there's also a linear method. So there's multiple ways to, 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 to determine critical power. And then there's also this three-minute test. I mentioned that in a previous episode. And you have to be careful with how you do these or whatever. But yeah, it's not necessarily done like a um, functional threshold power test. And there are that one test to determine threshold is problematic. And we can get into that in a little bit. Um, so yeah, and the nice thing about critical power is it's scientifically validated. It will it started in a, in the science community and it's gone from there. It is based on physiological things that occur that are occurring. The whole idea is to base power on physiology. FCP is not correlated with. I mean, it's correlated with physiology as we'll see, but. It was never looked at in a, through a physiological lens. It was more about how much power can you do in 60 minutes, right? So whether or not that has any physiological things that pertain to it is questionable. They didn't really look at it through that way. Critical power this sounds great. And then you have to wonder, well, why is it really not out there? And part of the problem, I think, is that it requires some special equipment to, in order to determine it. Uh, in a valid manner. And so sometimes uh, if you're doing that three minute test, I think it requires a special ergometer for it. And I think if you really want to make sure that you are getting the proper critical power, you need a metabolic cart to make sure that at the end of these efforts, you are approaching VO2 max. So they are very, very hard efforts and you want to make sure that you are approaching those. Uh, I think I mentioned, again, something I mentioned in a previous episode was if you do, um, if you use that critical power curve that's in Golden Cheetah, you'll figure out really quickly if you're, the lower your five minute power is, the, the, the higher your threshold it will calculate. But the thing is, is if you use a, a metabolic cart and you check to make sure that the oxygen consumption levels at the end of that those efforts that three minute or five minute effort if you check to make sure that that is approaching vo2 max then you can be sure that the athlete isn't sloughing off to to get a lower number 
to calculate a calculate out a bigger critical power. But yeah, it's associated with physiological responses. One thing that's really interesting. And, yeah. Would you generally expect this to be higher or lower than FTP? I'll get into that. Yeah. I'll get into that. <laughs> I have a whole thing. I'm <laughs> yeah. yeah. moving into that. Yeah. You keep going. <laughs> All right. Um, and then something that's interesting, it's not, it's not related. There's scientific studies out there that have demonstrated that it, what you determine as someone's critical power isn't related to time to exhaustion. That might throw people for a loop too because they're used to the this is my FTP, this is going to be associated with 60 minutes or this is my 20 minute power and it's associated with the best power I can do for 20 minutes. And then if you were going to give someone a critical power uh, or determine their critical power, you would, would be hard to determine with accuracy how long they'd be able to ride at that power now i guess there's some research out that says that that's about 23 minutes so then your critical power might be related to your 20 minute power but yeah i, I digress um and then some of the advantages of critical power is that you 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 basically if you're training with if you're using critical power you have all these great minds all these scientists that are building their models off of this um, measure of threshold as opposed to FTP. So this is where the W prime model and all these other things come into play. So that's, that's a big plus if you're one of these people that likes to stay up on top of things. And then there's some good arguments out there that critical power is a better measure of threshold than maximal lactate steady state. Can we just talk for just for a second, just take a quick survey between us how many people we know using critical power over FTP? I know, I know no one. I don't think off the top of my head. I, I know no one using it over FTP. I know some people using it as well as, but FTP is is winning for <laughs> yeah. all the coaches and athletes. Yep. I know. Yeah, I know one coach, uh, a professional coach, uh, coaching pro mountain bikers that uses it, and that's it. Mm-hmm. I don't know anyone else. So yep. that, that for me, that's interesting. That's I, an interesting. Honestly, I think I'd be more apt to use it if I was training pros in the middle of Europe and I knew I could get them to labs to get to get it done. Because um, again, like that three minute test is really appealing, and so as opposed to a twenty minute test. But you again, you can't just go out and have them do it out on the road bike you have to have some equipment that there to make sure and ensure that you're getting the right values for it so just to get into a little bit more detail about lactate thresholds this has to be said they're they're not all the same so there's many different types as i kind of mentioned before they are scientifically valid but many of these lactate threshold tests have issues with them and i don't think a lot of cyclists realize all the issues that they have even though they are these tests are scientifically valid and they might seem sexy in that way and i think there might be an attraction to them you know to go into the cycling gym and you know you get the the blood lactate test done and they figure out your threshold off of that using one of these any one of these different methods and you're like well this is a scientifically valid method this is the way to go and then like the next thing that happens is that they use it to determine their functional threshold power or, or something like that. And I think, I think I mentioned earlier that 
I've actually done presentations on this on why we should not maybe blood lactate uh, cyclists. And I presented that, uh, um, gosh, it might've been almost a decade now, but I think I might want to revamp that and do it in its own episode. So I won't get too deep into all of the different types of lactate thresholds. But one thing to mention here is, you know, most of these are determined off of a, off of a graded exercise test. And so, and so you have to be aware of some of the things that go on there, but the primary, I guess what they would might be considered like the gold standard for, you know, lactate thresholds would be the maximal lactate steady state. And that isn't done with a graded exercise test per se, but what that one involves is doing multiple tests over multiple days where you're basically riding at 30 minutes um, at a consistent power output. And what they're doing is testing your blood lactate during that test uh, or during that long effort. And what they're looking for is an increase in blood lactate between 15 and 30 minutes. And so if they're incrementally giving you a new um, power power intensity to ride at every day, what they're looking for is, let's say one day it was 250 watts that you were riding at and you didn't see that change in blood lactate. And then the next day they bumped the watts up 15 and they had you riding at 265 watts. And then that's where they started seeing this blood lactate increase at between 15 and 30 minutes into the steady state effort. What they would do then is they would go back a step and they would determine that as your maximal lactate steady state. Now, just because of the nature of the test, there's some problems there. If you, if you don't realize it is that you're going to be potentially underestimating your threshold by quite a bit up to maybe 15 Watts because, or 10 Watts or something like that, because you could, if you would have bumped it up 10 Watts, you might have not seen that increase in blood lactate. So it's hard to get it accurate. And also these are multiple days to get it correct. So it's, you know, compared to a lot of other testing protocols, it's not real handy and not real, um, was not pragmatic, I guess, practical. Um, and at the end of the day, and is that, is that MLSS related to LT1 or LT2? Yeah, that's a good question. Is that the idea there? Yeah. I, I always thought of it as being related to the second threshold. But, you know, there was one study that I came across and it placed it right between, uh, I think it placed it between VT1 and VT2 and one study with cyclists. So, again, again, it gets into like where we're going with this, like how these all relate and how they're not as clean as you would think they would be. Yeah. And at the end of the day, with all these blood lactate thresholds, these are going to, uh, they're all going to have to be related to either a power number or a heart rate number because you don't have a lactate value displaying on your bike at the moment. Unless, Damien, you're the the technology guy. 
how good is the real-time blood lactate monitoring right now? Are we at that point where we're able to figure out real-time training zones that are going to be sitting uh, on no, your garment? No. No. The, no. But actually, I just saw today that, that they're starting to trial something that's coming. But of course, mm-hmm. it'll be a sensory mm-hmm. um, unit. So mm-hmm. they're not proven at all mm-hmm. uh, at this mm-hmm. stage. Yeah. There's, there is a heap being done, I saw as well, in... Um, they're doing it in prenatal fetuses because it's a pretty quick way to work out whether they're going to be able to like. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, we see yep. we see all the like all the money <laughs> comes into medicine rather than sports medicine because no one dies from not riding a bike fast enough. So, like, often we'll just see that advances come when come from sort of another part of medicine, and then we'll get it into physiology sort of through the back door someone knows someone at the university and can say hey can i borrow that and use that for my cyclists or my runners or whatever but i did see a lot of stuff coming in with yeah the the newborns Mm -hmm. that they're getting some real-time data there and that's that's actually progressing Mm -hmm. pretty fast so that would be interesting if we actually end up seeing that in a sporting yeah i think there's a perth biotech company that's doing that I'm not 100% sure, but yeah, I think they were looking at that. But it gets on a whole rabbit hole that's not cycling related, but is actually really interesting yes. on the measurements within um, fetuses. But yeah, we won't go there. Uh, yeah. So the, the uh, there's obviously these other black la- blood lactate tests, and those are the more traditional ones. And, you know, people will hear about 2.5 millimolar uh, or 4.5 millimolar blood lactate levels that are associated with um, LT1 or LT2. Again, I mentioned the DMAX method and the DMAX modified method. Uh, There's the individual anaerobic threshold. Most of these are involved with a graded exercise test. One of the things that should be noted about graded exercise test is that if you change the graded exercise test, which is the duration that you're uh, at each step or the how high you increase each step. If you change those protocols, you can change your outcome for the blood lactate uh, measurements. And the other thing to kind of note with these is it's a lot of math involved uh, and extrapolating area, basically extrapolating a single point trying to, on, on, a, on something that's a curve. You're, and so a lot of these get really wonky to steal a word from Damien last week. They get really wonky really quick. And and to use another word that we've used on this podcast a lot is how much of this is path dependency. And I guess I could mention that there was one study that compared maximal lactate steady state with critical power, and they were under the impression their findings were was that critical power overestimated maximal lactate steady state. But there was a review that responded to that assertion and said, well, what's probably really happening is maximal lactate steady state is underestimating critical power because of all the flaw, all the flaws that are within maximal lactate steady state. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's an interesting argument. An interesting note because lactate threshold 
and or the measure of lactate has been around for a really long time. So it makes you wonder how much just the fact that the measurement came out a really long time ago, how much that affects our perception and of how important it actually is. Because it, it's a little bit myopic to be focused on just one metabolite. And the other thing to realize with lactate is blood lactate is more or less the shadow of what you really want to know, which is muscle lactate. And so the muscle lactate, you know, lactate comes out of the muscle, it circulates all around the blood, you, and yeah, this gets into a really long thing and why I probably should wait until I go into the whole episode on why we should or should not blood lactate uh, test cyclists. So I'll just kind of move on, but it really, there's another whole rabbit hole there. And in terms of the thresholds, kind of talked about those brief, briefly. Again, those are done on a great exercise test. Each one of these tests, I think, when we're going in a line here, I'm just kind of realizing this, they get more and more complicated and more and more expensive to do. So blood lactate testing is just going to be some kind of bike that you can do a greater exercise test on, and then you can have one of these portable lactate analyzers. Um, I can't remember how much they are off the top of my head, but they're definitely cheaper than doing ventilatory threshold tests, which require a whole metabolic cart. And I think those costs, the costs for those have come down a decent amount now. And a lot of it has to do with a lot of it's being calculated with, uh, these levels are being calculated with algorithms. So I haven't really looked at the kind of more uh, inexpensive versions. Of, uh, most of the time, I've been lucky enough to work with what's in a, in a university lab. So those are going to be you know, very high end. And those carts can be $20,000. Cyrus, would you agree? I mean, have you heard prices? I mean, they're, they're expensive. They're not cheap. So yeah, I didn't know the cost. I just know that uh, we were given very limited access as undergrads at the university, which generally means that they're pretty expensive to run, let alone buy one. Yeah, exactly. The rest of this is really talking about how they all relate to, to each other. Did you guys have any other anything to say, Damien, Cyrus, before we move on into looking at how these thresholds compare with each other? I would just say that I don't see them used very much in a practical sense in the pro peloton um i think most teams at their pre-season camp would do some lactate testing and the obviously the teams that have access to the metabolic cart would do that as well but during the season this kind of testing isn't being done all the te- the only testing that's being done is on bike power testing so and to then to go to back to the thresholds basically the only thing that you can base off that is your critical power and your functional threshold power i would say that coaches working with world tour teams now are going to be using more critical power than uh more using more critical power than you'd see the majority of coaches out there using just because these guys it's their job to be on top of everything and they're gonna be analyzing that along with ftp i think you'll see a lot more but out of all of these thresholds we've mentioned so far 
the ones that are actually going to be used the most at the top level of the sport is really just FTP and then some critical power as well. I just wanted to take a quick break here to say thanks for stopping by and listening to the show and to give you a quick reminder about who we are and where you can find us. The show is a collaborative project between sports scientist and cycling coach Dr. Jason Boynton, professional cyclist and cycling coach Cyrus Monk, and myself, Damien Roos, professional cycling coach and author of the Cycling Science Digest. If you want to get in touch with any of us or find out more about what we do, check out the show notes of this episode for links to each of our websites or social media accounts. Also, a reminder that you can be part of the show too. We host the show live on Clubhouse every week. Just search Clubhouse for the Cycling Performance Club and you'll see our scheduled room. And with that, let's get back into it. Let's dive into how these thresholds all relate with each other and and this is something this was actually a big part of why I wanted to get into looking at this because I knew they weren't all the same yet I knew they were good measures most of them had to have some validity in terms of actual performance with endurance athletes so yeah that was one of the reasons I wanted to dive into this deeper. So, but before we get into this, I really want to point out that this is what I would call like a qualitative or maybe a a narrative comparison between these different types of thresholds. It's not a really super scientific way to look at it. It's not quantitative or a meta-analysis. Basically what I went and I did was I found different papers that compared these different thresholds and so you would find like a paper that would compare critical power and ftp but it wouldn't compare critical power with mls or mlss so that's one thing to kind of keep in mind here if you if we want to look at this really really accurately we would probably have to do some kind of meta-analysis which would be a, a lot of time so this is like i said this is the findings that I found on the papers that are out there. So I'll just read them off here. So Karsten et al. uh, compared functional threshold power and critical power. And what they found was, was there is a strong correlation between critical power and functional threshold power. And and then, but there was a 91.7% probability that critical power was higher than FTP. And that meant uh, consequently that, critical power was significantly higher than FTP. That makes sense. And that they also made the argument that these values of critical power and FTP should not be interchangeable or used interchangeably. They also said there was no difference between 20-minute power and critical power, which is something I mentioned before because there's research out there that has shown that critical power equals 23-minute uh, approximately 23 minutes in a time to exhaustion test. Um, and they also noted that 95% of your 20 minute power, which is the calculation for FTP is actually closer to maximal lactic state steady state. So interesting findings there. There was another paper that looked at functional threshold power and critical power. They found that there was no 
significant difference between the two. However, there were very large limits of agreements. And because of that, and the individual variability between these two measures, they also argued that FTP and critical power are not interchangeable. So as you would kind of suspect there. And were these, when they're determining FTP in these, are they using just the 20 minute test? Yep. In, yep. In these there, papers? Yep. yep. There was one paper that used, I think, two eight minute tests or something like that. And I was like, where are they getting that from? And then I think they might have gotten it from Carmichael training systems or CTS training systems might have something to do with those eight minute tests. Not real sure. Uh, but yeah, all the ones I've talked about here are using that 20 minute power test in a, uh, the 95% conversion. Yeah, it's interesting to note though that even when you're comparing thresholds, you're using the secondary measure of one of the thresholds to determine it as well because um, obviously it is really difficult to get people to ride flat out for an hour mm-hmm. and pace that mm-hmm. well, especially if you're using athletes that haven't done many hour efforts yeah. recently yeah. to to sort of have an idea of what to aim for anyway. But yeah, the it is just interesting that even the testing is using that secondary measure mm-hmm. as well. Yep. And that was, I, know, I was, one thing I was hoping to come across in this paper and I thought I've heard this before and I thought I've heard someone say, talk about this paper. I asked both you guys about this paper is, does the calculated FTP actually relate to what it's supposed to relate to which is this 60 minute you know so it'd be a I, I thought i've seen this paper i just couldn't find it but i thought there was a paper out there that looked at 60 minute time trial power versus 20 minute power with the correction with the 95 percent correction factor and none of us could find it for this so maybe we'll have to bring that in again because it'd be interesting to know if FTP actually even represents what it says it's supposed to represent. Because it seems like very wonky to me. And one of the things that, that came out of this uh, this Morgan et al. paper was they looked at W prime, which is more or less like a measure of anaerobic capacity, but it's not. But just for the sake of the conversation, it's, you know, what the the capacity that you are able to perform over threshold and they found no correlation between w prime which would have been calculated through the critical power testing and the difference that five percent difference between the 20 minute power so they're basically saying this five percent doesn't really represent anything and i think damien you brought this up before there was a previous study that looked at the relationship between maximal lactate steady state and FTP, they saw that it was more like a correction factor of around uh, 91% instead of 95%. So yeah, it gets gets into a a big rabbit hole. And yeah, while I'm on the topic of functional threshold power versus maximal lactate steady state, which is supposedly the kind of old school gold standard for the the threshold between heavy exercise and severe exercise. What one study found by Borks et al. I'm butchering that name. I I know uh, FTP. What they found was FTP and MLSS have a strong correlation, 
which is not unsurprising because they're both measures of very similar threshold. And they also decided that the, it was potentially a practical alternative to maximal lactate steady state. However, this is where it gets interesting. You look into more studies that have compared functional threshold power and maximal lactate steady state. And, you know, there was one study that they didn't really say it explicitly, but they had a graph, but they didn't have what was significant and what was not significant in the graph. But it looked like 20 minute power and functional threshold power were both higher than maximal lactate steady state. But I had a question mark there. And then there was another study by Inglis et al. And they demonstrated that 20-minute power and FTP were both greater than maximal lactate steady state. And they also showed this one involved the training study. So they did these tests before they did training and then after they did training. And what they found was that the maximal lactate steady state measures were able to register the change in fitness for the athletes, but the functional threshold power wasn't. So these authors did not recommend FTP as a representation of maximal lactate steady state. So it's, yeah, it it gets really interesting. And and without doing some higher level meta-analysis type math, it's hard to really distinguish what is true uh, when you're comparing functional threshold power with some of these measures. Uh, another one here was functional threshold power and and all uh, and a bunch of the other lactate threshold measures. I call them the other lactate thresholds. So what they found was, this is Jeffries et al., they found functional threshold power strongly correlated with fixed blood lactate concentration. So another strong correlation between two thresholds. That's not super surprising. But what they found was FTP was significantly higher than all of the other methods of determining lactate threshold. So the DMAX method, the OBLA, um, the fixed method, like all these other methods, functional threshold power was significantly higher than. So if you are somebody who is using interchange, using these two things interchangeably, like your blood lactate tests to determine threshold and your functional threshold power tests to determine threshold, they're not the same thing. I have one paper down here for functional threshold power and VT2 or RCP. And that was Barranco Gill et al., they found that FTP strongly correlated with RCP, but again, the power at RCP or, or VT2 was higher than FTP in all cases. So again, these two th- types of thresholds are not good representations of each other, even though they correlate. And when I say they correlate, what that means is that if you are an athlete with a high R- RCP or a high ventilation two or a high LT2 or high critical power and a high functional threshold power, you're probably going to perform well in races just like you would if you had a, you know, some of the high FTP is probably going to have a high, uh, any of these other thresholds. And those people are probably going to be predisposed to do well in endurance races. And getting back to how critical power is really nice because it's scientifically validated and it's in the scientific literature the whole, this idea of having a meta-analysis to compare critical power with other physio- 
physiological measures, it's already been done. So that's already out there. And what they found was, and one thing I wasn't a big fan of with this meta-analysis was these studies that they brought in for not all the individuals were well-trained cyclists. So you have to kind of, you know, take the information here with a grain of salt, but the critical power there highly correlated with VT2, maximal lactate steady state, VT1, but again, the high correlation, but despite the correlations, the meta-analysis found that VT1 and maximal lactate steady state were underestimated uh, and RCP and VT2 were overestimated. And yeah, that's the gist of things. You could do more comparisons between the different types of thresholds out there, but I kind of skim over that just for the sake of saving time. But yeah, do you guys have any thoughts on, on that? Did you guys realize yeah, that? Or did you guys realize there was that much difference it, or how they related? Or anything? Yeah, I had realized basically what you've summed up there. And it's frustrating because you are trying to map out either in your head or on paper where all the thresholds relate to each other and how they sit and get a nice graph to put together. But it's really difficult because I think part of the reason there isn't one of those graphs is that their threshold, the, some of them, even the definition of them isn't set in stone, which makes it difficult to place it in relation to others and then also you can see from these studies that two studies looking at comparing the same two thresholds are finding varying results with that mm-hmm. and that's that is making it really difficult to yep. sort of set out where all these thresholds relate to each other mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. there's obviously the other issue of how they relate in trained cyclists versus untrained mm-hmm. cyclists and mm-hmm. whether there is a true difference there mm-hmm. so i think basically as is the case with most things more research is required yep. but um and it is just a whole lot of work to actually get your head around all of these different thresholds and that you can see for for many coaches and athletes why they just say uh actually i've started looking at that i'm changing my mind and i'm going to keep using ftp for now until someone else does the heavy lifting for Mm -hmm. me and and tells me what i should do and just to speak to two of the points that you have there about how these studies could get potentially different results is especially with the anything that's going to use a graded exercise test, you can potentially change your results based on what those graded exercise tests they were using to determine the blood lactate or the ventilatory threshold levels. So if those, uh, yep. if those extra grade exercise tests were not universal between the two or the, then there's going to be discrepancies there. There's also some literature to show that, you have to be careful about the lengths uh, for the duration of time that you're using in your critical power tests that you are putting together. And, yeah. but that seems to work out if you have one or two that are, I think up to 12 minutes or longer. And there's also seem to be a trend, I think between the experience for training years, that type of thing between how, 
functional threshold power relates to these other measures of thresholds. And what it seems to be is that the more trained individuals are, the more familiar they are with doing hard efforts. It seems like the differences between these measures of thresholds of functional threshold power and I think maximal lactate steady state, I think those start to decrease actually. That might be why some of these papers have said it's a good representation of MLSS and other ones were not. Potentially, that might be some of the reason behind that. And so, yeah, I'll just get into my conclusions here and then just kind of open the floor with you guys about the practical take-homes for the coaches and the athletes that would be listening to this whole long spiel here. Um, so here's my, like my take homes and my bullets here. First is, um, the thresholds, especially the thresholds that are proclaimed to, um, separate the hard and severe domains. These appear to be, and generally speaking, they appear to correlate with each other, but they're not interchangeable with each other. So that's probably one good take-home that we've, I think we've beat to death at this point. Uh, another take-home is that thresholds are not always the same relation when examining individual test results. What that means is, let's say here we were saying that critical power was higher than threshold. Well, you might actually have an individual where they're, that's reversed, and I've actually seen this in raw data before. Neil Henderson posted some data where he did some functional threshold power testing and then on one day and then did black blood lactate testing. The other day, I, I actually ran a t-test on those two data. They weren't significantly different between the two different measures of threshold. So in that sense, with his, with his population, there was no statistical difference. However, when you looked at the relationships within the individuals, sometimes the functional threshold power was higher. Sometimes the lactate threshold was higher. It, so it would swap back and forth. So that's one thing to realize is that there's these thresholds overlap. And there's probably, they're probably close enough with each other where you could actually get one higher than the other, even though these results here would say you wouldn't necessarily see that. The other one is the testing protocols affect the determination of threshold. Even if the thresholds share the same name, they actually might be different. But you could have determined critical power, but you, if you would have done a bunch of really short tests, one one time you were calculating critical power and you did some short and longer tests another time you calculated critical power or you know you were trying to calculate one of these lactate thresholds and you were do, using different um, graded exercise tests or or even with MLSS if you were using different steps um, for the level of watts that you were having these riders ride at these all these things could actually have an effect, enough of an effect where you would, maybe you could almost say you're measuring something different, even though they would be, have the same label. So you have to be really careful, especially when you are measuring with your athletes um, 
between, you know, if you're looking for changes in training that if they're in at different labs or something like that, they're not using totally different protocol between the two different uh, testing sessions. Another thing to think about when you're considering this is the accuracy of the threshold. If you have a really accurate threshold, it doesn't necessarily mean you have accurate training zones or training zones that actually represent physiological uh, parameters. So that's another thing to consider. So even if functional threshold power is shown to be really accurate um, or interchangeable with something like maximal lactate steady state, it doesn't necessarily mean that the zones that are determined from it have anything to do with this, with physiology. So that's something to think about too. Another wrench in the works there. And the other thing I think that's hopefully come out here is that there is no real ultimate measure of threshold. There's always, you know, there's always going to be this potential argument, especially between critical power and functional threshold power between what is, is it scientifically valid versus just raw pragmatism. And the last thing to consider here is how long you exercise because most of these determinations of threshold are going to be determined after short warm-ups. And so there's all kinds of things that change after long periods of riding and what you determined your threshold to be, you know, in a lab might not be what your threshold level is after four or five hours of riding. And obviously that's a pretty obvious, but it's worth kind of uh, pointing out. And the, the other thing to consider is obviously, because I always talk about environmental considerations is, and we've t- discussed this too, I think is just, is it hot out? Are you at altitude? Because that's going to affect, that's going to affect what you think your threshold is. It's going to make it lower uh, effectively. But yeah, that's all I got. I've talked a lot. Thanks for uh, listening guys. But um, yeah, probably the most research I've put into a topic so far. And I still look at it and say, man, I have a lot more I could be looking at here. But um, yeah, I didn't want to get too long-winded today. Uh, Oh, I open the floor to you guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all the listeners that are still involved here. Thanks. I I enjoyed that. Thank you for putting the work into that. That that has kind of made me curious, more curious about critical, critical power because I do use FTP. But then it does come back to this thing of if I wanted to change, I've got to change everything. Mm-hmm. It kind of confirms that you have to go all in on whatever threshold you're measuring and then everything that flows from that or everything before that, the testing before that, and then how you use it after that. And if they're not interchangeable, for me, that means I have to go and re-learn everything change my entire method. Um, mm-hmm. I do wonder if there was some some way that you could combine the two, at least in a transitionary kind of phase to see how that works. But um, I would probably be interested in more of a how-to for critical power, mm-hmm. what it looks like in the real world, how people are using it, um, how it relates to any training zones and things that people have. Um, but as far as... Yeah, the stuff that you presented today, a lot of it is just, it looks like it's in the too hard basket to even think about because there are so many variables. It's better to Mm -hmm. double down on something 
and uh yeah and I yeah don't know, maybe i'll change at some point yeah my question to myself and and to you guys although i think the answer will be pretty similar for all of us is um what would it take to make you change and i think it would just be firstly sound something coming out just showing that FTP is absolute bogus and not useful, which I don't think we'll actually mm-hmm. get because it's we've just seen over and over again that it can be used quite effectively to in to aid coaching and to help an athlete progress. And then the other thing I would need to see is it critical power be easy to use in training picks or whichever system I choose to use. But I think that is the main draw card for FTP, which I was touching on at the start, is just the fact that it is easily applicable. Everyone knows what you're talking about when you say FTP. And for any new athlete, you can almost assume that any athlete coming to you that has trained with a power meter and knows what it is already and is going to have done that test or something very similar before. So that 20 minute test I'm referring to. So I think it just in terms of practicality, that's where FTP's kicking goals at the moment. And I think for the majority of athletes and coaches, practicality will have a big role over pure accuracy because you're not having access to a lab all the time. You're not in perfect training conditions. You don't have five hours each week free to explain physiological concepts to your athlete and go through all of these things. So in this case, for now, for me, near enough is good enough, which I don't like particularly that that's my stance on the matter, but for me, I'm going, that's why I'm still using FTP and I'm definitely open to changing if if those things end up happening. But that's that's my justification at the moment for sticking with something that isn't as scientifically backed as a lot of the other things I'm using in my coaching. All right. Um, I'll probably try to wrap it up here, but how yep. about I just drop a huge bomb on, on this whole conversation? <laughs> <laughs> Um, how, Go for it. how about I just say it doesn't matter? How about I say none of the thresholds matter? And I'll make a real quick argument for it just to like to leave a cliffhanger and just to piss everybody off <laughs> that I made everybody go through all that. And then just I could just say, well, maybe it doesn't matter because, well, let's think about it like this. Okay, so you're trying to use it for zones. Well, what are the zones you really need to know? If you use a polarized training model, then you need to know the severe intensity zone and you need, or the severe intensity domain, and you need to know the moderate uh, exercise domain. Well, those are very different just how they feel. So, <laughs> and if you do your intervals based off of um, doing performing them in and an all-out effort, then you don't really need to know your training zones because you're definitely going to be in the severe training zones if you're doing the right time durations uh, with the minor, right amount of rest between them. And yeah, low-intensity exercise is low-intensity exercise and, 
and if you're fluffing around with trying to figure out seven zones when really I don't know why those are there, uh, maybe there's some reason for it. But when you're looking at what we're talking about with the three exercise domains, maybe you don't need a real accurate measure of, of thresholds. And then it's like, well, how are you going to uh, measure their increases or decreases in performance? Well, there's that's not always going to be left left up to one test anyways. So how would you do training load then? Because I, I find that is one of the most useful measures, methods of using FTP. Yeah, exactly. I'm really glad you brought that up. And then it's like, well, how accurate? Have you go through some time and change that, change your functional threshold power by like 10 or 20 watts and see what actually happens to the model and see if it actually does anything that would really make you change much of your decisions. It's... I'm yeah. I'm just dropping a bomb here. I'm just making people think. I like I I, I like the it just for a thought exercise and <laughs> I just I'm just upturned the apple cart, I know, but um that's what this podcast is about, right? So yeah, hopefully people don't get too pissed and not hopefully hopefully you know there's no broken phones here, but it is just some food for thought. Any thoughts on that, Damien? Are you punching is that are you are you are you uh, punching your desk right now or I'm not that upset about, about that. I, I, you know, I was going listening to that to the whole thing as far as the comparisons and things mm-hmm. between FTP and critical power and stuff. And uh, the thing going through my head was like, why? Why do we need all this stuff? Mm-hmm. Why? Why do we need the research into it? Why? To, why would we need it as coaches or athletes? So yep. that kind of helps with that. You know, helps with understanding how how wonky this whole world is. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when you, when it comes down to it, you probably could get away with RPE. Yeah, and and, and remember at, somewhere in the beginning of this conversation, I said I prefer threshold uh, zones over zones determined off of peak power or VO two max because I think they're more accurate for endurance athletes. I think, and I think any one of these thresholds, as we've determined, with the high correlation between them, would be probably better than vo2 max threat zones um as determined by functional threshold power this especially with this study that looked at functional threshold power versus uh vo2 max and saw and found better results and base or highly the results of the competition correlated higher with functional threshold power so consider that and then realize how successful riders that came out of the AISR and that's the they were using the VO2 max based zones so yeah does it all matter um and I don't know like the intricacies of you know maybe some of the riders were using threshold zones I I'm not real sure but I knew I know the AIS was using the VO2 max based zones. And so that throws a whole wrench in it as well because at the end of the day, it's a very successful program. Wouldn't you guys agree? Yeah, but I also um, don't particularly like the that uh, rationale of this person uses this mm-hmm. and look how yeah, good yeah, they yeah, are yeah, because yeah. I, yep. I think... Yeah, you can always find someone in the 
pro power time. Yep. And it's like, yep. look, yep. he he refuses to go to altitude yep. and he's still climbing well. Well, I, I think so. my point is, is not that, that I think it's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up so I could clarify on it. I'm not using that point to to justify um, VO2 max zones as being great. I'm saying, well, being having how much does threshold those threshold zones really matter when they weren't even using thresholds and they still had a successful program. Yeah. Now you you still have a really good point about like well maybe they would have been better if they would have used threshold zones. I would totally agree with that. I would totally go with that point. I'm and yeah, I think it's really good. I think you're pointing um, pointing that out is really good because uh, I don't want to be I get hung up on an anecdote too much, but like it's just something to kind of well just think about that for a second. You know, think about that yeah. anecdote. I think. Um that's the main thing out of this podcast uh, today. I don't think it had, well, it's definitely answered a lot of my questions on what each threshold refers to, but definitely hasn't answered a question on which one is the best mm-hmm. or why there, why we actually yeah. need them. Yep. <laughs> so, but it's, it's good to actually get people thinking, I think, because so many people just like immediately just fall into, I need to know my FTP. And I want to know what this person's FTP is and why is it FTP even and just thinking about all of these things without sort of asking the big why question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Um, well, I don't, that's all I have for this and I'm sure we could talk a bit more, but um, we'll wrap it up so we can at least make it look like it, it looks short when people are trying to figure out if it, what, what podcast they want to listen to. Well, this one's close, not too much over an hour. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, any last thoughts there, Damien, before we close out here? No. All right. All right, Cyrus, <laughs> take her away. Thank you to everyone who contributed. You can find out when the weekly call is scheduled by following us at Cycling Performance Club on the Clubhouse app. And you can find out when each episode is released by following our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook accounts. On Twitter, we are Cycling Club Pod. And on Instagram, we're Cycling Performance Club. Thanks for listening. See you next week.